Hello everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great city of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Tina Lunny, a financial planner, wife, and mother who surprisingly lacked the skills to manage her own family's finances. The Lunny family enjoyed a comfortable suburban life until a group trip to the beach changed their lives forever. In an attempt to keep up with the Joneses, Tina would commit a horrific crime in an act of monetary desperation. Before we get started with today's story, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to Kathleen M. Hyde, a professor of criminology at the University of South Florida, parasite, or the act of killing one's parent or close family member, is actually quite uncommon. Parasites only make up about 1% of all homicides in the U.S., with about 5 people killing their parents annually on average. 84% of the people who kill their parents are adults, but girls who kill their mothers are more likely to be children when they commit the murder. Around 82% of people who committed matricide acted alone. While children who kill their parents often do so to escape overwhelming abuse, adults usually do it to put a psychotic, depressed, or otherwise seriously ill parent out of their misery. Overall, however, it's incredibly difficult to predict when or if a child will kill their parents. Our story today takes place in Fairfield, which is in Essex County. It's a rather small, rural-feeling town with a population of around 8,000. It's pretty much like any other Jersey town that's largely residential where most people own their homes, the schools are good, and there isn't much crime. The town is only 10.5 square miles big, so how much bad could happen there, right? Tina Lunny was born Tina Zoppi in 1967 to her father, who was a cop, and her mother, Marie, who was very involved in the church and worked nights. Tina was described as being bubbly, fun, and full of energy. When she was a teenager, she began working at the supermarket as a cashier to help support her family. That's where she met her future husband, Chris, who was a stock boy there. A couple weeks later, they started dating, and her mom was a big fan of her new boyfriend. Chris eventually went to college and started working in the IT department at the local police department. He proposed to Tina, and of course she said yes, so the two got married in 1992, and they moved to Fairfield. After the move, Tina began working in the finance department with the city. The couple was also able to move Marie, Tina's mom, into their finished basement. They lived in a split-level house, so it wasn't, uh, like, even fully underground. And even though Marie now lived with her daughter, she was still very mobile and independent. Tina would just check on her and greet her every morning, but aside from that, she didn't really require any special care. A year after Marie moved in, the Lunny's son was born, and Chris bought Tina a dozen roses to celebrate the birth of their first child. And a couple years later, their daughter was born. The whole family was very close. They were always hanging out and watching TV, going to events together, and helping the kids with their homework. Marie and Tina would regularly go down to Atlantic City and gamble and take little girls trips together. Once the kids started school, Tina became a financial planner at New England Financial. Because she was very experienced with finances at this point, she handled all the bills at home. She allocated the couple's paychecks to savings, bills, and activities. Even though she wasn't interested in having a super nice car or nice clothes, Tina spoiled her children. She wanted to make sure that they always had what they needed, and then some. Their son was an athlete, and he attended various training camps needed equipment, and their daughter was in a handful of activities that would inevitably require supplies and membership fees. Chris had his inheritance set aside for the kids' colleges, so their future was set as well. The Lonnies were just a solidly middle-class suburban family. Then, it's the morning of July 22, 2009. The kids are now 11 and 13 years old and they're home on summer break. Tina was getting ready to drop them off at summer camp for the day. The family was planning to go down to the Outer Banks with a couple of their families and they were all going to rent this big house to stay in. Tina makes the final payment on the house that her family was responsible for and she goes downstairs to check on her mother. She comes across a very disturbing scene. Marie is motionless on the floor with blood on her head. Tina calls Chris, unsure what to do while in a complete state of shock. Chris asks her if she's called 911, she tells him she hasn't, so he immediately calls. 
When the police arrived, they checked for a pulse, but Marie was dead. Because she was on the floor and was 81 years old, they figured she might have had a heart attack and hit her head on the way down, or maybe she slipped on a rug and just cracked her head on the floor. However, when they turned her over, they saw that she had a necktie tied around her neck. Tina alerted the police that it was a suicide because she found a note near her mother's body that said, Tell the kids I love them. You don't need me anymore. This was incredibly puzzling because although it's not super uncommon for the elderly to commit suicide, Marie was a reasonably vivacious and active octogenarian who loved hanging out with her family. Why would she commit suicide? The cops are very quickly suspicious because the scene was not looking like a suicide. There was nothing that Marie could have hanged herself on where she would have ended up on that location on the floor naturally. As in, she was just in the middle of the floor with no sort of like ledge or ceiling fan or anything to hang from nearby. Also, a person can't really choke themselves to death with a necktie and especially a somewhat, you know, like feeble old woman. But then the question would become, who would kill her? There was no forced entry and nothing was missing, so it couldn't have been the classic robbery gone wrong, which it so very rarely is. Naturally, the police began questioning Tina and Chris. Tina said she became concerned when her mom didn't come up for coffee that morning like she usually did. When she knocked on the door of the basement and Marie didn't answer, Tina tried to open the door but found it locked. She goes outside and peeks in the window to see her mom face down on the floor. As the police originally did, Tina assumed Marie had fallen and hit her head, so she climbed through an open window to get to her. When she came over to her mother's body, she saw the tie and then the note, and that's when she called Chris. She couldn't answer why she didn't call 911 at that moment. But the cops still wanted to know, why would Marie have committed suicide? Tina claimed to not know, but she did remember a peculiar phone call she had with her a few weeks prior to her death. She said her mother had suggested that she should just take a bunch of pills and just die. Marie had also allegedly said that she should have never lived at the Lenny's house, but didn't elaborate on why. She apparently told the kids, you won't need me, you won't miss me, which totally freaked Tina out because this was so unlike her mother. She couldn't fathom where these thoughts were coming from. It was discovered that it was Chris's tie around the mom's neck, so now suspicion was beginning to crawl towards him. Chris's account of what happened matched Tina's. He recalled that his wife called him in complete hysterics and she only said, there is something wrong with my mom, you have to come home. The only course of action he knew to do was to immediately stop what he was doing and rush home. Chris couldn't confirm what happened before the phone call because he wasn't there, and Tina didn't really explain it to him on the phone. By the time he showed up to the house, Marie was already dead. The autopsy determined that Marie's manner of death was homicide. The report revealed that she had been strangled. The medical examiner reiterated that a person cannot choke themselves to death with just a necktie. They would have to hang themselves. The police already determined that there was no way that Marie could have hanged herself. The autopsy also showed that Marie fought to the end and five of her ribs were broken in the altercation. Now police are becoming increasingly doubtful of the Lunny's story. On the surface though, the Lunnies were a regular family. Chris and Tina's marriage didn't seem to have any major flaws, so they couldn't understand how the two could be suspects. It then comes to light that the Lunnies were actually broke. Not like how we all joke about being broke, but we're like still getting by okay. No. Their mortgage was in shambles and their house was about to be foreclosed on. They had a mountain of unpaid bills and there was a pending lawsuit against Tina for unpaid credit card debt. Not only were their accounts in the negatives going back multiple years, but Tina also got someone to like jailbreak their electrical box and legally hook it up to still get power to their home because their utilities had been shut off. This ugly little puzzle was starting to come together until something weird happened a few days after Marie's death. 
Chris walks into police station to report Tina missing. He tells him that the family spent the night at his sister's house because they didn't feel comfortable going back to the house where their family member had just died. Everyone slept terribly, Tina worst of all. She hadn't slept most of the night and was just pacing around the house, mumbling to herself. Chris woke up at 6am and Tina was just ready to bolt. He offered to come with her, maybe to just take a walk or something, but she left without him to go to the store for some cigarettes to clear her head. This was instantly worrisome for Chris because he could see his wife was not in a stable mental state. He and a friend tried to look for her, but after a while he just went down to the police station to report her missing. This throws a wrench in the investigation. The cops are now wondering, is this Chris's way of covering up for Tina who had actually killed Marie? Or had Chris killed both Marie and Tina because Tina would have been a loose end? Not only was this case incredibly confusing, but this was the first murder in Fairfield in 20 years. The police were not used to cases like this. They quickly realized that poor Chris was completely in the dark about everything. He had no idea about the alarming financial situation his family was in because Tina handled all the bills. She had experience in the financial field and she was his wife, so he trusted that she would handle their money properly. After asking him a series of questions, the police know Chris is telling the truth. He couldn't believe it when they told him that Tina was a suspect, but the detectives still didn't understand what they were looking at. Why would Tina kill her mom? How? And did their financial desperation factor into the case? Using video evidence, investigators learned that Tina had gone to Target after she left the house that day, grabbed a bottle of water, and then drove down to Atlantic City. I feel like the stories I've covered keep stopping in Atlantic City. But anyway, gambling down at the slots is definitely an odd reaction for someone whose mother was just brutally murdered. I will never understand why people don't think they'll be heavily scrutinized when there's an unsolved murder of someone close to them. Do they not realize that they'll be a prime suspect regardless of any alibi they think they've established? So it's been a few days and the police still hand tracked down Tina's specific location. But on July 27th, they received a 911 call. A guy walking his dog thought he saw her wandering around his neighborhood. The police go and find her and pick her up in the area where they discover something weird in her pockets. There was a handful of suicide notes addressed to her husband and her children. One of the notes for her son read, Mommy was sick. I'm happy with Nana. I love you. Make sure you try it for soccer and football. Yet another element of this case that just baffles investigators. Was Tina actually going to commit suicide? Was it because of her missing her mother? Or could it have been out of sheer guilt from killing her and lying about it? When they got her into the interrogation room, Tina just straight up said, Do you want me to tell you what happened to my mother? The investigators shrug and are like, yeah, what happened? Tina responds with, honest to God, nothing. That's what's so bizarre. Girl, what? Obviously something happened because your mom died in your house from a homicide. So she goes on to explain the events that led up to the murder. Chris had left for work and she had dropped the kids off at summer camp. Tina went downstairs to visit her mom like she did every morning. Her mom asked her to apply some rash cream on her neck, so she did. It's at that moment that Tina notices a tie on the table and apparently just went off and strangled her mother to death. Once the act was over, she realized what she had done and she was in denial. She proceeded to go about her day as normal and went to work, but she knew it was only a matter of time before people started asking questions. The next morning, she waits until Chris leaves for work and then she calls him and you guys know all that happened after that. The investigators noted that she was very matter of fact as she told her story, like she was just telling you about her regular day. But her tone switched up when they had the nerve to ask her, why? Tina immediately got defensive and clearly did not want to answer their questions. She claims there was no motivation. Again, girl, what? I don't look at an innocuous item on a coffee table and suddenly decide to murder someone with it. Stop lying. 
Then the cops slap her with the old faithful. The through line of most of my stories thus far. They said, we know you cheating. When I heard this part, I was like, why not? Why wouldn't she also be cheating? Although this didn't really factor into her mother's murder that much, it spoke to Tina's overall character and that the police were privy to more information than she thought. She'd apparently known the person for three years and they would meet her periodically throughout that time span. Chris didn't know about the affair and the guy she was cheating with somehow didn't know about the murder. I say somehow because guess who she was cheating with? The cop that Chris reported her missing to. What an absolute slap in the face, right? After this, Tina was arrested and sent to the Essex County Jail. Chris had absolutely no idea how to process all this devastating information. He found that his family was totally destitute, his wife had been cheating on him for years, and there was a good chance that she had killed her own mother. Not knowing what to tell the kids, he just told them that Tina and Marie had gotten into a fight and that Marie had fallen and hit her head, and that's how she died. The case started in May of 2013. By all accounts, this trial was just wild. Some sources describe it as being like a soap opera and a scandalous daytime movie drama. As you can imagine, even more dirt came out about Tina. Although she had confessed during her interrogation, she recanted that confession and arraignment because she claimed she was in a confused state, so she pled not guilty. The defense argued that when she found her mother on the ground, it pushed her mental state so far that she made a false confession. Albert Capon, Tina's attorney, said that between finding her mother dead and the overwhelming guilt of destroying the family's financial stability and cheating on her husband with a police officer, Tina had a mental breakdown. Capon stated, when you don't have a memory of something happening, that's when you guess. It didn't happen when she said, it didn't happen the way she said, and she never said why. She didn't do it. I love how he's just making her the victim in all of this. The prosecution basically ignored the recantment and worked on laying down the facts. They began by letting the jury know both about Tina's affair and the fact that she had gambled away all of her family's money. She would cash her and Chris's checks and just instantly gamble them away. Tina even stole from her kids. You remember the inheritance that was earmarked for their college funds? Well, I hope the slot machines are going to college because that's where all the money went. By the time July 2009 had rolled around, Tina couldn't keep up the ruse anymore. She was able to skate by for years and hide all the awful things she was doing, but eventually her house of cards had to fall. The trip to the Outer Banks was the straw that broke the camel's back. The rental company kept reaching out to get that final payment, but Tina didn't have the money. She was able to hold the bare minimum together, but she couldn't scrape up the payment for this expensive vacation because there was nothing left. She had gotten to the bottom of her bag of tricks. Missing that payment would mean no vacation for anybody, including the other families, and backing out would have reflected badly on them socially because their dire financial situation would have been exposed. The prosecution's attorney, Don Simonetti, asserted that the payoff for murdering Marie wasn't life insurance or an inheritance. Marie didn't have any money waiting that was directly tied to her death. The goal was to get to her credit cards. They had evidence of Tina calling the credit card company for the pin as she was impersonating her mother. Not only did she call after they had determined Marie had died, but Chris confirmed that it was her voice on the recording. Investigators also discovered that the payment for the trip came from Tina's work computer and was charged to Marie's credit card. Tina didn't have $10 to her name when she murdered her mother. The defense argued that the prosecution didn't have anything on Tina. They argued that some rando busted into the house and randomly killed Marie and didn't rob her. The unknown killer somehow knew she was in the basement at that exact time, killed her, and then jumped back out the allegedly open window that Tina claimed she crawled through to get to her mother. The defense also accused the Fairfield police of botching the investigation because they didn't send anything in for evidence, not even the necktie. 
there was nothing physically connecting Tina to the crime scene. They claimed all the prosecution had on her was a recanted confession. Capon closed with, Tina Lani is a bad business person and she may even be a thief, but that doesn't make her a killer. I always love when defense lawyers basically just say, I know my client is a terrible person, but they're not that terrible of a person. Simon Eddie was basically like, no, incorrect. This woman was asking the questions, baby. She asked if Tina is so mentally unstable, how did she not only drive herself down to Atlantic City for three days, but also come back home and recount all these details about her trip? Simon Eddie stated, I don't see it. I see a woman who was going to kill herself, but didn't. During all of this, she's just like pointing at Tina's face and just one step up from straight up cussing her out. Tina's face was all red, but she didn't say anything. Simonetti also posited to the jury, are we to believe that coincidentally, as she's paying off all these bills with her mother's visa, there's a suicide note on the couch and some stranger comes in through the window and strangles Miss Zoppy for no reason? This woman took a tie from her husband's closet and as she said in her own words, I panicked, I did it, I staged it. She finished off with the question anyone would be thinking, who else would have killed Marie? A psychiatrist named Dr. Latimer had diagnosed Tina as having bipolar disorder with psychosis after she got arrested and believed that she was pressured by police to confess. He testified that her trip to Atlantic City was basically a way for her to reconnect with her mother since they used to go there a lot and that her personality had dissociated from reality itself. What's wild is that the prosecution asked that same psychiatrist if Tina had told him that she had killed her mother, and she had. She wasn't in that high-pressure situation of an interrogation, and she doubled down. Dr. Latimer had to admit that he had previously reviewed the report of another psychiatrist named Dr. Paul, who had also examined Tina. Tina had told Dr. Paul that she and her attorney were planning to use the insanity defense to escape the charges, while the doctor had already determined that she did not display any deficits in her cognitive functioning. So, in short, Tina was not mentally unstable, but intended to make it look like she was, What's worse is that she also admitted this plot in a suicide letter that she wrote to her husband, Chris. She said that she wanted to end her life after fully grasping what she had done, but that she was also scheming to use some kind of insanity or diminished capacity defense. On May 22, 2013, the jury decided that 45-year-old Tina Lunny was guilty of murdering her 81-year-old mother, Marie Zoppi, and she was sentenced to 40 years in prison in August. She has to serve at least 34 years before she's eligible for parole. She will be released in 2049. Chris declined to speak for much of the trial, but according to the state attorney, he only said of the whole ordeal, justice was served. I just want to say, poor Chris, man. Of course, poor Marie, too, because she was murdered at the hands of her own daughter. But Chris just could not stop crying while he was testifying on the stand, and the kids were absolutely devastated and heartbroken. Chris and Tina had divorced well before her case went to trial because she had ruined their lives. The Lunnies were traumatized by the whole case and left utterly penniless. They were left to pick up the pieces of the shattered family. The residents of Fairfield fully supported Chris and the kids, and they would have supported Tina as well if she had come clean about the gambling addiction. I don't know if they would have stood behind her about the affair, but I guess it doesn't really matter in the end. Financial desperation situations like this often manifest in a person murdering their children or spouse, which is why it's so surprising that Tina killed her mother. I guess because she knew that Chris didn't have a life insurance policy, and she figured grandma dying would raise fewer questions than her husband or kids dying. When you're in a really tough spot in life, the last thing you should do is kill to solve a problem, especially temporarily. What was she planning to do once she hit the limits on the credit cards? No amount of credit cards could have dug her out of that hole. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I'll see you all next week. Goodbye!